a stranger with a gun came upon two teens taking pictures under a rising full moon. But violence is only the beginning of this story. Sometimes I thought, there are no miracles. Yeah, there are. And this is a big one. I'm Amy Donaldson, and I've spent my career talking about how lives are undone by violence. The Letter is a podcast about how lives are remade. Follow The Letter at theletterpodcast.com or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, welcome to Project Recovery, a podcast about addiction. More importantly, it's about recovery. And who's it brought to you by? Me and you. That's right. We've been doing this for three years now, Dr. Matt. Right. We're a little bit in between sponsors, but but we have some people interested in the show, right? Yeah. And, you know, the thing is, is the sponsorship really helps us do this weekly because right. uh, it's a, it's more of a labor of love for us. For sure. Uh, nobody's getting rich. No. <laughs> uh, with gas prices right now, I need a co-signer for a big gulp. Yeah. You know what <laughs> right? I mean? So uh, this is not really paying any bills, but yeah. let's just rock and roll. Uh, the first part of the podcast, Dr. Matt, is me and you kind of just talking and uh, I have a couple things that I want to talk about. Yeah, let's do it. Uh, so I went to a bar, <laughs> uh, which is weird when you're an alcoholic. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And most people are like, well, why'd you go to a bar? Well, let me explain. Let's hear it. So me and the lovely Leslie, that's my girlfriend, we right. went to dinner. And mm-hmm. we're at dinner. We run into some friends. Where, which uh, part of the, where are you at? Ogden. Ogden. Uh, and so we're at Ogden. Yeah. And uh, we run into some friends at dinner. Uh-huh. And uh, they'd been drinking and, and, and having a great time. Right. And so which, they, for the record, doesn't make you uncomfortable. No, or, it doesn't make yeah, me uncomfortable. Right. Um, but they kind of hijacked our date. Uh, so next thing I know, everybody's sitting at our table and yeah. uh, just having a good time and just BSing. And, and, and it was really fun. It was actually made the date a lot easier because sure. we had a bunch of different conversations to bounce around with it's and, fun. and have some fun. And I looked at Leslie and I was like, are you cool with this? And she's like, yeah, this is fun. And I was like, cool. And so we were talking and all that stuff. And then these young guys, and they're a little bit younger, maybe 10 years younger than us. They're like, hey, we're going to go to the bar. And I was like, yeah, I don't think I'm going to go to the bar. And they're like, well, why don't you just drive us down there? And I was like, I can do that because I'm sober. Right. You know what I mean? I, let me be your DD. That's a new statement for you to yeah, be able to yeah, make. Normally I was the DD <laughs> and that just meant designated drunk. Yeah. But now I'm the designated driver. Right. And I was like, hey, cool. I'll take you guys down there. Uh, but that's, I think, about as far as I'm going to go. Okay. Uh, because it was, to be honest with you, it was like 9.30 on a Friday. I've been getting up at 4 o'clock in the morning. Uh, That's true. I and just hang it, When you're not drinking, hanging out with a bunch of people that are drinking gets old fairly quickly. But I was like, it's okay. It's fun at first, yeah. but then, yeah. So I was like, so we go down there, and uh, they, I drop them off. And they go, you should just come in. Uh, our buddy Lee's in there, and he's this guy from England. Uh, he's got this great accent, loves to talk soccer, and I hadn't seen him for a while. And so I was like, Okay. Okay. I said, Leslie, can we go in for, she goes, yeah, sure. If you feel cool. And I was like, I, yeah, cool. Let's go. So we go in and, um, I walk in this bar and it's called Heck Yeah. It's really not called Heck Yeah. It's called, but we're on KSL. Is that the KSL version? Yeah. Oh and so we gosh. go into this bar called Heck Yeah. All right. And I walk in there and I stop and I look around and I'm like, this doesn't seem like the bars that I'm used to. Uh, how so? Well, there was a table full of kids playing, um, what's that game, that yeah, the, the blocks? Hungry Hungry Hippo? No, the, where you stack them on things. Uh, Jenga. Jenga. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. There was a group of kids playing Jenga on a table. Yeah. And I was like, huh. Jenga at the bar, huh? Jenga at the bar. <laughs> yeah. And then I looked around and there was a bunch of couches and there were people sitting on the couches. Right. On their phones. 
Yeah, it's because you know who's running the bar. It isn't guys our age anymore. No, it's millennials. And right. I'm like, wait, 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 wait. Where's the loud music? Where's the smoke? Where's the dark lights? I mean, yeah. that's the recipe to make a bad Maybe decision. Maybe a pool table. Yeah, there were no, none of that. It uh. was Jenga and couches. Wow. And I was like, oh, man. Was it the big Jenga pieces or the regular It was size? the big Jenga pieces. Yeah, that's the cool thing. The only thing. cool thing was is that people wrote on the Jenga pieces, like uh, drink two or introduce yourself to the person to the oh, right. Oh, so it was sort of a, like a drinking game yeah. Jenga. All right. But then you're sitting there, and then I'm talking to Lee for a minute. And next thing you know, crash, all the blocks fall down <laughs> to the ground. I'm like, this is what just is kind going of on? weird. Yeah. So I was like, ah, all right. And so I talked to Lee for a minute, and then we left, and that was it. Oh, okay. But it's fun to walk into a bar when you do a podcast on recovery and you're an alcoholic. Do you get some head turns? Yes. Yeah, so people are like, I think that's And that's him. your town. Everybody knows yeah. I think, well, you I think in that's that town. Him. What's he doing here? You know yeah, what yeah. I mean? Right. And it, but it was just kind of fun. So that was Friday night. Saturday night, I'm DJing a wedding. Mm-hmm. Uh, and this party is lit. I mean, it's crazy. <laughs> you know what I mean? And people are dancing and having a good time. And I'm up there rocking and rolling. And uh, this dude comes up, a young hipster. has got a mustache and a mullet. And he goes, <laughs> I know the guy. Hey, friendito. Can you play a little John snap your fingers? <laughs> and I went, what? Friendito. I go, did you just call me friendito? And he goes, yeah. I go, I appreciate if you don't do that anymore. <laughs> I don't think I want to be friendito. Friendito with mullet like, boy. And like, but the way he sold it, like we were old compadres. He was like, right? hey, smooth. friendito, you yeah. got to play little John, snap your fingers. And I was like, I'll play the song, but yeah, don't call me friendito, man. <laughs> I, That's I don't hilarious. Be friendito. Yeah. But, and uh, that was a good time. And, you know, the crazy thing is, is that when you're in that that the party situation. Right. And it's a lot of fun for me to be a part of it. But inevitably, there'll be three or four people at that party that'll come up and go, hey, I just want to let you know you're doing a good thing. Oh, yeah? I've been in recovery for seven years, or I've been sober for 23 That's years. That's right, yeah. And and then you'll get one guy who will come up who's been imbibing a little bit, mm-hmm. uh, looking at you, talking to your shoulder, going, you know, I think I need to do what you did. Get and some I, thinking, huh? Yeah, and get some thinking. And I go, well, I'm going to tell you what Dr. Matt says because he's the smartest guy I know, you're in pre-contemplation. There you go. Nice. He goes, what's pre-contemplation? I go, the fact that you're thinking that you need to do something suggests that you know you need to do something, right. and you're just trying to figure it out. Yeah, take so it to I the always next say, level. congratulations. Yeah. And they go, for what? I haven't done anything yet. I go, but you're thinking. You're thinking. That's and right. you're moving exactly in the right. right direction. And that is absolutely the first step before action. Is pre-contemplation. Yeah. See, so even well, I- And then you go to contemplation. Yeah. And then you go to- making plans and action and all that stuff. But, I mean, I, I think that's an interesting thing and a unique thing that, I mean... Well, thinking about something isn't nothing, right? It's required to get yourself uh, uh, maybe committed to the action because otherwise, if you don't really think it through, if you're not contemplating why this is important for you and, and what you need to do, then that's where people go to action and then back to to using and action and back to using and that we call that relapse right you're mm-hmm. just you're just kind of doing this cyclical thing mm-hmm. but take your time if you're thinking about it if you're in pre-contemplation or contemplation you're making plans you're thinking about it you're seeing Casey out at a bar and thinking I need to be more like that guy that's useful stuff because that gets your brain wrapped around the commitment that it will take to go from to action and stay there I love it. And that's why I like doing this podcast with you because uh, in my addict brain, I know what's going on with an addict when it comes to substances and, and, and alcohol. And you go like, well, this is what the brain's really doing. And I'm like, that is awesome stuff. <laughs> well, you're out there doing it. And I love the fact that uh, 
I love the fact that you're not afraid to go out and have fun, even in situations where other people are drinking. Because you know what that says is it says that a person in recovery can still live their best life, be their best self. They don't have to limit themselves necessarily to uh, you know, uh, isolation. And I think a lot of people are afraid to get into recovery and be sober because they're, they're worried about becoming socially isolated. And they're like, well, I'm going to lose all my friends or my family's not, you know, we, we're not gonna be able to have a normal family party, or we're not going to be able to go out with my buddies that I, you know, I'm gonna have to give all of that, the, my relationships up. And, and that's not necessarily the case. I know there are exceptions. You have to give up you know, some there, relationships. There, yeah, there are some relationships that are toxic, but they were probably toxic for a lot of reasons, not mm-hmm. just that. And it was a beautiful disaster. Yeah. Hey, uh, you know, I've said this on the podcast many times. I got sober to live, not hide. And I know a lot of people who got sober and are just hiding. Right. And, and that's that, not the way I want to live my life. Right. And I, I hope people will see your example and realize there's a lot of life out there to live for sure speaking of a lot of life our guest today is angelique how are you hi i'm so good and uh we've been trying to get her on the podcast for two years yeah Uh, i remember you did a podcast a while back and i was like i gotta hear her story and i texted you and said would you like to do the podcast and you said yes yes and then you said no. Yes. Because you had, uh, you, said, you said it was an emotional hangover. Yeah, a vulnerability hangover. Yeah. Yeah. Because that was the first time you'd ever put it all out there. Yeah, it was. And I think it takes, like, I, I've told it and I've, I've thought about it a lot, but putting it in the public and then hearing, like, my, my friends and family hearing it and, you know, their different takes on it, it was, it was, it was hard. to. I felt bad about it. Well, you know, it's interesting because there are different takes on it. Yeah. You know what I mean? There's your take, there's their take, and then there's the truth. Yes. You know what yep. I mean? And uh, that's the reality of it. I mean, I mean, even to this day, I'll be talking to my ex-wife or my kids or my girlfriend or whatever and saying this. And the way I have it in my mind is is the way that, that I believe it. Right. And the way they were like, well, that wasn't actually the case. And I was like, huh. <laughs> yeah. Because I could have swore that's how it happened. But as an addict, you get so good at telling yourself stories and believing them. And yeah. like, I'm pretty sure that happened. Right. Yeah. yeah. I got away with that. Right. Well, and I think we all have different perspectives and takes on situations. So, well, we yeah. can't hear, wait to hear your take on it. Uh, Angelique <laughs> will be coming up next right here on Project Recovery. I'm Dave Cauley investigative journalist and host of the podcast, Cold. Don't miss Cold's new season three, where I look into the unsolved disappearance of Cherie Warren, a woman last seen leaving her job at a Salt Lake City office in 1985. Police cast suspicion on Cherie's estranged husband and boyfriend, but never made any arrests or recovered Cherie's remains. Find Cold season three, The Search for Cherie, anywhere you get your podcasts. Hey, welcome back to Project Recovery. I'm Casey Scott. That's Dr. Matt Woolley. He's a clinical psychologist. Our guest today is Angelique. Now it's Angelique Richards, Angelique Armstrong. You said you're, you're kind of like Cher. You're just I, going with yeah, one name. Just Angelique. I feel like we're I'm hanging Madonna. out with the stars, like Madonna. Yeah, Prince. Well, when we. F- a little later on in the podcast, we're going to find out all the cool stuff she's doing. I know. It's absolutely amazing. But before we get to that, where does the story of Angelique begin? Let's start at the beginning. Right? <laughs> Where'd you yes. grow up? Oregon. So Medford, Oregon, I was born in. And I have two sisters and my mom and dad. And then... So you were the middle child. I was the middle child, yes. And you grew up LDS. I grew up LDS. And when I was five, my parents' marriage ended. 
and my mom got remarried and there was some trauma and some abuse and it was not it was a difficult childhood there was some hard things that happened but um after a few years my mom left him and married another really good guy who had five kids they were all boys and then we there was three girls of us and it was like the Brady Bunch. Like, well, I was gonna say I, I was gonna say Brady Bunch, but I didn't know if you'd get the reference. Yeah, no, <laughs> I'm I get the reference. <laughs> All right. <laughs> um, and there was one each of our age, and we went to high school and school with them. And um, it was, and then there was one with Down syndrome who I'm really close to. His name's Brigham. Have you guys ever been to Texas Roadhouse? And there's like sure a, a, in Lehigh. No. He's the host there. So uh, he's oh, like well okay. known. He's like more of a celebrity than I'll ever be. Bring him at the Roadhouse, yeah. Texas Roadhouse yeah, in amazing. Lehigh. So if you're over there, go there and go say hi go for say Project hi. Recovery. Yes. Um, and so having trauma at a young age, I felt like very unsure and unworthy about myself. And we moved around a lot. Like I actually went to 12 different schools growing up. Wow. And I, um, there was just different things with divorce and jobs and a lot of changes, a lot of chaos. And I remember going to high school and I went to a new high school and I thought, okay, what can I do to fit in, to be popular, to be liked? And I was like, oh, well, I could be skinny and be a cheerleader. And, it, you know, I see that people are doing that and they're popular. And so that's what I'm going to do. And so I started trying to lose weight and started stretching every night. I made the cheerleading team and instantly became popular, which was fun. It was a great time. But I think that I I started this pattern of looking around me and trying to fit in. And I think a lot of us do that. Especially addicts. Especially addicts. But it's like, I feel so gross and so not worthy inside that I need to feel okay and safe. I think it was about safety. Yeah, let's pause on that for just a quick second. This so, is where he does his so you, oh, I'm excited. <laughs> but that's so so interesting. It's a perfect example of, you know, when you're growing up, when you're elementary school, junior high, especially in high school, you are trying to solidify your identity, like who you are as a person. So there's a lot of tumultuous stuff going on inside of a person. All the more reason to have the things around the child and the adolescent be calm and stable. Mm-hmm. When things are calm and stable around the kid who's growing up, then they feel like they can work on that identity development. When things around the kid are chaotic, inconsistent, lots of change, then uh, it's very hard to focus on developing yourself. So I'm not surprised. It's it's a pretty much a teenage tendency anyway, right? Yeah. But I'm not surprised you looked around yourself and you said, I need to find some stability. Yeah. I need to find some friends, some popularity. I, I want to feel wanted. That will help my identity. Mm-hmm. And so you found something, the classic cheerleader, yeah. right? And and it works, though. I mean, at least temporarily in a certain way, um, those sorts of positions in the social strata of high school do work. So yeah. I'm not surprised that became really important to you. Yeah. Thank you. Um, So, yeah, I did that. And it was I had a good high school time. And after high school, I was I mean, I was in Portland at that time. And my parents encouraged me to move to Utah and find a husband because that's what we do in this culture. (laughs) (laughs) And so I went to UVSC at the time. And okay, before any of that, did you try any alcohol in your high school years? No, no, no. Great question. I was I was very good girl. Uh Nothing. 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 Okay. And then you I think be- I got like my wisdom teeth out and had pain pills and loved it. But other than that, like I didn't, I didn't. But you only took the prescription for yeah. the time you yes, had it and exactly. didn't go searching no, for no, it No, no, I wasn't on the streets hustling. No. Was, was high school 
uh, stable then for you? Were you kind of in one place for high school? Yeah, yeah. And then you mentioned wanting to get skinny. Yeah, was yeah. That, did that become a big focus through high school, um, like your body it, image? And yeah, like that? It, it was. And I was actually, I'm smaller now than I was then. Um, oh. And I would, I, I think I would emotionally eat a lot, but it was always on my mind. That, and I even had my cheerleading coach be like, well, you're one of the bigger girls on the squad. Oh, and I mean, just little things like yeah. that. And Another thing that was a huge theme is image. And it, and I honestly think it's like in my family's DNA. Like we, we talk about even to this day, my mom will go to things and worry about weight gain or our image. And kind of I, the external yeah, stuff, how and you I, look. And, and I think it is even almost like this is my currency. This is my worth. This is my value. And if this is okay and everything else is broken on the inside, I'll be okay because I'll be accepted. Right. And so it's – and so I'd, I'd work more on the exterior than the interior and – it would just be a way of me to feel like I belonged. Well said. Oh my gosh. Thank that you. is so much of that is the adolescent experience. But when a person is hiding uh, things about themselves that they don't, and as a teenager, we can only expect a teenager to really have so much insight. Right. But when you've suffered a lot of change, inconsistency and abuse and trauma, mm-hmm. then you're right. It's, it's the tempting thing is to focus on the outside. Yeah. And one of the drawbacks to things like, cheerleading dance all of that is it's so externally focused it's how you look and do you fit the right image and a lot of young people unfortunately get very focused and even obsessive about that external at the expense of working on the internal right yeah and i think especially in that age you just want to belong and i think what i was going for it was more fitting in than belonging Mm -hmm. right Mm -hmm. and so i think there's just this this need and so it's like if i do all these things i'll belong when or but it's not it's just fitting in i love the differentiation between those two fitting in versus belonging there's a big difference isn't there yeah there is so you end up going to Utah Valley yes, Community I did. College. You said for a husband, but most I, people would say an education. No, it was for me. I was like, oh, and, and it was just weird to be in like a room or even a building full of all Mormon eligible bachelors. Like, I'm like, what am I? What is this? Like, I was, I was like, oh, could that be him? Oh, is that him? Oh, I don't know. Um, but it was like truly... It was not what are, what do I want? What is my passion? What is my value? What does my future look like? It was like, who is going to be my husband? Who is going to be my partner? Um, and I met someone who is a, p- a great person, amazing. But it wasn't for me like this is my person I am so in love with. I want to spend my life with. It was this isn't my soulmate. This isn't my soulmate. It was. I had been abused. I've been in trauma. I want someone that's not going to hurt me or my kids. I want someone who's going to be safe and stable. And it, it, I mean, my my parameters for marriage were very. But the, the description you just made is the same description when buying a car. Yeah, you know, yeah. I mean, that's I mean, true. it's a minivan. It's a minivan. You know what I mean? I, I, this is going to be reliable. Yep. It's going to be not hurt me. It's yep. going to be safe for my kids yep. and all these things. And yeah, it's a. I mean, it's a sort of a conservative choice right right it was to like a strong interpersonal connection exactly and it was um this like oh i'm 20 i'm old like i'm 20 (laughs) so i need to be someone's wife like that's my job that's my purpose um and after i got engaged and i just want to say this person that i ended up marrying is an incredible man he really is he's he's never hurt me he was wonderful it just was not it for me it was not it and um when I was engaged, I would cry almost every single day, feeling like this isn't it. Like, I don't feel right about this. I can't do this. And I went into my bishop and I said, listen, I don't, 
I don't think I can do this. And he said, well, any two people worthy in the sight of the Lord can have a happy marriage. And so I went through and did it. And um, right after my marriage, I fell apart. Like I was having panic attacks. I was anxious. I was depressed. I did that thing where it's like, I don't know how to be someone's wife. I don't know what a healthy marriage looks like. So what am I going to do? I'm going to look around me and see what everyone else is doing and try to fit into that. And so I just let go of any authenticity I had and tried to be something I wasn't. And right after I got married is when the numbing started. It was um, I needed Xanax because I was I would like leave the house and I would like be hospitalized for my panic attacks. They were so bad. So when you got the Xanax, were they prescribed by a doctor? Yes. Yep. And so you went to the doctor and said, I'm having these debilitating yep. panic attacks. Yep. Uh, I, I, I really just don't know what to do. Right. And he goes, I think this might help you. Yes. And that's a common response. I mean, it's a medical doctor. And so a medical doctor prescribes a medical intervention. Right. Um, unfortunately, and, and I think more so in cer- certain places that those docs will recognize this, you know, medicine is going to get her through a day, mm-hmm. but it's it's there's therapy and retraining yeah. uh, the mind. And in in your case, honestly, you had a hugely underdeveloped identity of yeah. who you were. Right. Yeah. And so that really needed the focus. But like you said, you're going we all do it. You know, relying on how did I get through yesterday? I'm going to use those same tools for yeah, today. Absolutely. And so you decided, how can I fit in? And yeah. makes perfect sense. Yeah. Let me ask you this. Uh, and I know we don't want to talk too much about the trauma, yeah. but did you ever unpack any of that before you got married with a therapist or anybody? Did you ever address that at all? Yeah. Um, I, I actually ended up going to a therapist because my eating disorder got really bad after I, well, I guess that was after I got married. Um, I I had, but I feel, I can't even explain. It's like I wasn't even there. Like I was in a fog. I don't even feel like I had the awareness to process it. Mm-hmm. it, it I, I think I did a little bit of therapy here and there, but not nearly to a space where I knew I had any value or like understanding of, of what I needed or what I was. Does that make sense? No, it makes Oh, totally. Uh, and you know, the. A little bit like, um, you know, how we go through cycles in recovery to become sober and and everything. Uh, Same thing in therapy. Like a person's not always ready and equipped. They're not always having enough support outside of the therapy session. Uh, Sometimes we're young. Mm -hmm. And so teenagers and young adults don't quite always have the insight and capability yet. Um, So it it sometimes takes takes time. And, you know, if you were uh, feeling like... Well, my external life's working, you know, yeah. like I'm going to high school, I'm a cheerleader, right. things yeah. are pretty popular, I'm doing well, I have friends. There isn't a lot of motivation to open up that stuff inside. Those old yeah. wounds. Yeah, and yeah. so oftentimes, just like with uh, recovery from substance addiction, uh, in therapy, there has to be a catalyst, and sometimes yeah. that catalyst is a crisis, and it sounds like for you, the crisis was getting married. It was. So you're married now. Uh, you're taking Xanax because you're having unbelievable panic yes. attacks. And, and that's s- pretty bad if you had to be hospitalized for panic attacks, right? It was right? bad. I would, like, people need to understand how bad yeah, that is. It was bad. I, um, it was it was horrible. I And I would walk around with, like, let's pretend you think that your town is going to be bombed. Like, the fear that that would have. It was like I was walking around with that every single day. Did you have physical symptoms with it as mm-hmm. well? I would. I would shake. I would, like... I would couldn't breathe. I I would literally like carry a bag around to breathe out of because it was like 
I just the panic and the hyperventilating. Yeah, I would hyperventilate. Um, and then I, the person I looked to was my mother-in-law, who is this like Mormon Tabernacle Choir, beautiful singer, homemaker, would like make jelly out of things off the tree fruit. and like fruit. Yeah, those yeah. things. <laughs> I'm trying to think of the the, the thing. Maybe I don't know. I got Apples. you. Plums. I got you. Like wake up at 5 a.m. So burp cloths. Like just like the ultimate homemaker. And I have a lot of great qualities, but that is not internally who I am. So it was like I was just trying to be something I wasn't and feeling like I think a very much a lack of identity. Um, And then we moved to Chicago. Uh, My my ex-husband or my husband at the time got a job out in, in Chicago, his first job, and we got pregnant. And there was a lot of panic around being a mother, which is now the most incredible thing ever. Is you know, it, it's, it's amazing, the best thing ever. And we're going to find out more about Angelique's story in just a few seconds. You're listening to Project Recovery right here on KSL. Welcome back to Project Recovery. I'm Casey Scott. That's Dr. Matt Woolley. Our guest today is Angelique. You and your husband at the time just moved to Chicago. Thanks. Uh, and found out you're having a baby. Yes. And you've already got bad panic attacks, and I can't yeah. imagine this helps. You know, it was it was almost something to be strong for. You know, like it was like, you know, this is like the new version of me. I'm going to be a mother. Like I need to be well for it. I need Gave to be you healthy. purpose. It did. Um, and it also, at the time, I had to get off my meds mm-hmm. to be pregnant. And I did, and it was hard, but I did it. And um, I had her... And there was a lot of complications and it was really, really difficult. And I already, I was isolated from family. I was isolated from myself. Like I didn't feel a connection to myself. Not a good, me and my ex were extremely codependent. I feel like we were kind of like growing up together and it was like. Well, you guys were both 20 when you got married. Yes. Yes. We were in our 20s and he, um, he was the rescuer. I was the victim. And it was the cycle of like, I'll be the hero. I'll save you. And you are in trouble. And Mm. It just became our dynamic. And so after she was born, um, they there was all these complications. She got stuck and they had to use a vacuum to get her head out. And it was misshapen and they think it like hurt her skull. And then they thought she had a syndrome. And what the syndrome would mean, it was called Prader-Willi syndrome. And mm-hmm. what that is, is it's missing the 14th chromosome that controls hunger. So she would eat and eat and eat until she would throw up. Like she had no control over her eating. And it triggered my eating because we had to hire a nutritionist. We had her in six different therapies. And they said, we're going to do genetic testing. But if she has this, this means she's not going to have a normal life. Like she can't even live in the home because she needs to live in a home where food's locked up yeah. and exercise. Yep. And and that was like the worst. Next it was level. It was next level because it was like I can control my own stuff. But when it's happening to your child, it's just next level pain. And so – we took care of her. We had her in therapies. And finally, the results came back that she did not have the syndrome. Oh, good. And great news. But she had hypotonia and some other things that we worked through with physical therapy. And she, now she's the most Awesome. Perfect. I've seen her on Instagram. She's so perfect. She's amazing. She's, she's amazing. a mini you. <laughs> she is. That is the most panicky sort of feeling to think that your child might have a lifelong debilitating yeah. problem. And right. of course, for for many people, that becomes their reality. Yeah. But the Prader-Willis is something that I've seen uh, with patients before. And you're right. It's, it is you, it is a life sentence. Yeah. of And it sounds kind of crazy to think like, well, can't we just teach a person not to eat? But right. that, is, that is such a scary thing. 
And for you to be able to uh, work through that is uh, amazing. How did that affect your marriage? Um, I think we both were in survival mode at mm-hmm. the time. It was like he focused more on work. I focused like – and I was not in a healthy place whatsoever. So mine was like for me to be a good mom, I'm going to self-sacrifice everything, everything. Like I have nothing left. I'm just giving everything to my daughter. We had to put glasses on her. We found out her vision was really bad, and I would have to hold her glasses on for like hours for her to get, like, to for it to regulate and her to get used to it. Um, So I felt like my whole identity was taking, like, helping my daughter progress and getting to her good place. And after we got the news back that she was okay, I fell apart. It was like I was in survival and I was okay, and then I fell apart, and I was just not. It was like I had panic, but then it went to like very bad depression and very bad um, anxiety. Did you get back on the meds? Oh yeah. Oh yeah. And, 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 but it added. So after too, I had, after having the baby, I had a lot of chronic pain, really bad pain. And it was unexplained. They didn't, they didn't know, but I remember going in and they're like, you have the spine of an 80 year old. And I'm, I'm like, Hmm. what do you mean? They're like, you have, so I, they said you have a degenerative disc disease, a joint facet disease, um, arthritis in your spine but they didn't have a diagnosis at that time. And I was like, hmm. they're like, here's pain meds. So then then came on the pain meds. Mm-hmm. So I started, I was on um, Xanax and pain meds. And then I couldn't function and I was too tired. So they gave me Adderall. And so it's just this like cycle of like, I downers was on all the drugs. Downers and uppers, downers yep, and uppers. Yep. Yeah. And um, I did that for a while and I ended up overdosing. I was on... Um, at the time, it was like Xanax, Ambien. Um, oh, and then I was on Ambien too. So I was on. I can't I, believe you could. Eat, I mean, I guess you couldn't function, but mm-hmm. like Xanax and opioids and yeah. uh, Ambien. I mean, that is zombie right. time. Right. Throw an Adderall and yep. then throw some Adderall yep. in there, which just yanks your brain yeah. uh, up into some sort of cohesion, and then right. you go back down. I mean, that's uh, it was unbelievable. Not good. So you OD. Did it for years. Yeah, I OD'd, and I actually went into a psychosis. Because I took five different drugs at once, and I wasn't trying like I wasn't trying to hurt myself. It was just like I was so into just taking whatever, and ended up overdosing and um, went into psychosis. I pulled my passport out, and I was showing my husband. I was like, "Look, I just got a, a letter from Parks and Recreation. They want me to be the stylist on their show." And then I'm like, "Oh, John Mayer's calling me!" Like completely. So explain to the people because they're 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 psychosis. A problem all by itself, and mm-hmm. sometimes you know the ultimate of that might be schizophrenia. Yeah, but there are a lot of diagnoses where something induces psychosis. Yep. It was so, chemical induced, so yeah, yeah. drug induced psychosis. Yeah. Explain to people what psychosis is. So it was basically like I was hallucinating, like I just saw things that weren't there. I heard things that weren't there. It was like I was in a whole other reality. But you believed and, it. And but, oh, I believed so it. So it's it's the hallucinations. You're yes. right. So any of your sensory organs can be involved in that, right? Right. And then uh, delusion, yep. right? So believing that John Mayer's calling yep. you, unless he really was. I mean, he no. calls me all the time. Yeah, okay, all right, right. <laughs> yeah, I know. He's got my number too, and it's really yeah, annoying. It's great. Uh, but like believing that your passport was somehow yeah. a, a letter yep. to be on Parks and Rec. Yeah. Like this delusional thinking, and it is the person's reality. Yes, and it's wild. And I, I'm great. Like in hindsight, I'm grateful for all of these experiences because I can look at someone who's suffering in any situation and be like, I'm not going to judge your situation because I know that like it is. It's insane, and it's so. It feels so real, and it's. It was absolutely crazy. It was a trip, and so I had to go into a detox center 
after that. So what? what how did? How did? Uh, what was it? Uh, a physically dangerous situation? Did you have to be seen by EMT? Like yeah. Or, or? No, I, I mean, it, mine was like, it was. It Did your was, husband panic and not know what to he do? He didn't know what to do. And I, I actually at a point, like I remember being in the car and he was playing a song and he's like, do you know? Cause I, I stopped talking and he was like, do you know what song this is? And I couldn't even speak it. I couldn't even say what my favorite song was. And so there, I was just mute and just kind of dead. Like, um, there's nothing going on. And so he took me into a hospital. I don't remember a lot of it. I remember thinking, this is so weird, that you, if you go in the TV room and you stomp around, you can get free shoes. <laughs> so oh. I would just be stomping around in circles thinking that I was getting all these free getting shoes. some Prada. Yeah, totally. Hopefully. <laughs> Isn't that, I mean, we it's look back wild. on it and we feel, however, you know, sometimes people feel embarrassed or they right. think it's kind of humorous. But in those moments when a person is psychotic yeah that's their reality and yeah. it's very it can be very scary it's it is terrifying and there were some really scary things i saw and heard and finally i detoxed off the meds and the, i was working with doctors and they're like okay you're good and they told me some things to remember when i first got there and then by the time if i told them back i was able to get discharged um but honestly as crazy it is it took me a while to even believe that that didn't happen like the things weren't real Mm. After the meds went off, because yeah. I, I thought I was getting an SUV. I thought Parks and Rec was giving me an SUV to be. I was a wardrobe stylist at the time for a record label, and mm. so being hired as a stylist in LA, like it was yeah. something possible. And so, like it was just, it took a while, and it was really sad and hard to see my husband at the time going through, watching me go through this. But even then, I didn't go to rehab right away. I was just like, oh, I'll manage it. So they sent you back out because you repeated the things to the doctor. Yes. And did they give you the prescriptions again? Were you supposed to take them again? Do you know? I think that they weaned me off and gave me a little, but I worked. You know, you work the system. Oh, yeah. I'll find new doctors. I'll, you know, I'll find a new way. Because, I mean, when you're in that mode, it's like, this is the only way or I will die. Like, this is the only way I can function. There is no other way. Mm-hmm. So in the hospital, you didn't have an epiphany where you realized, I've got to no. stay away from Mm-mm. you. You probably thought, I just need a better cocktail. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> So you're back, and then uh, does it get ugly again for you? Um, it it what? Oh, I'm trying to think of what happened next. Um, sorry, there's a lot of pieces to the story. So at this time, I was dealing with really bad chronic pain, and so I was actually bedridden most of the time, and I was just not, I was not doing well, and I started running out of my Xanax. And so I thought, well, alcohol could be like Xanax for me. And even though it's against at the time my values because I'm Mormon and I'm not supposed to drink, but I'm I'm going to talk to my husband. And we had this really unhealthy codependent relationship where I'm like, OK, I, I need alcohol. It's like I'm, I ran out of my Xanax. I'm going to have a panic attack. I'm going to have to go to the hospital. I need alcohol. And so he kind of got on the same page and we decided I'm going to start drinking. I, my first time it was like I was on a plane and my sister took a shot and I was like, oh, I want to try that. And I had my first shot and I was like, oh, this is it. And so that's when I went back and was like, oh, I need to, I need to make this part of my cocktail, my routine. And so once I started drinking, it all went really, really ugly because I hadn't been drinking at that time. Um, after the drinking, I he would like have to check if I was breathing every morning because I was I was taking pills on top of it, and so oh, he man. would. This is so dangerous. Oh, I know, and and I was wildly depressed at the time too. So it was like I, I felt dead inside. It was like I have nothing to lose, which is a real. And at the time, so I was 
I was bedridden most of the time. I had no connection. The connection I had was with substances. And I really wanted to have another baby. And because um, and I actually got misdiagnosed and was told I had a pituitary dysfunction and I got put on all these hormones. And because of the hormones, I ended up gaining all this weight. And the weight gain triggered my unworthiness and my unlovability because I was treated different. My, my image has always been a huge thing for me. And so I like people wouldn't open doors and smile and just little things. I'm like, oh, well, if my image is my worth and no one is treating me like I'm a beautiful person, I am unworthy, unlovable. I, I, and up till this point in your life, correct me if I'm wrong, that's the part of you that you worked on developing. Yes. No blame. Yes. But that's just the circumstances, Absolutely. right? Yep. And on top of that, you're a wife and a mother. Yep. And in your belief system, those are primary. Yep. And so you're giving to your husband, you're giving to your daughter. Right. And once that external you know, image goes away, what's left. Right. 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 And it was, and it actually triggered this search for worthiness and a self-love journey that led to my first time to go to rehab. But I wasn't functioning as a mother because I was like, okay, well, if my worth is not my image, then maybe it's being a mom. So let me just put all my effort into that. But I was in level 10 pain with drugs on top of it. So I couldn't do all the things. I couldn't make dinner and go grocery shopping and do the dishes and do bath time. So then I'm like, again, what is my worth? I'm unworthy again. I'm not fulfilling all of these things that I'm supposed to be doing to be worthy. And then I discovered Brene Brown's work about vulnerability and authenticity and worthiness. And I was like, wait, maybe I'm worthy as is. Maybe I'm just worthy. Um, And so I kind of started playing with this idea of worthiness and um, I, I had a job at the time and I asked my boss who also was using drugs and I was like, hey, I ran out of my meds. I need, um, could you hook me up with weed? And he was like, listen, I would go on the streets. I would do whatever you need, but I think you have a problem. And that was the first time that, I, and, and my dad, and I hadn't really mentioned this, is he struggled with addiction. And it was the ugliest, most triggering thing to me that it was like, I never like being called a drug addict is the worst thing you could ever be called. Like it's just disgusting. It's horrible. And being looked at that way, I'm like, my ego was just like, absolutely not. That's mm-hmm. that's not me. So I was like, I'm gonna I'm gonna take my pills as prescribed to prove to everyone that I can. And it was like three days and I couldn't do it. It was mm-hmm. above my control. So I ended up going to rehab the first time. And how did that go? Um, you know, it wasn't it, – it, it was okay. I was – um, I don't – my mind and my heart wasn't in it. Yeah. It was like, this is what people want me to do. This is what I should do. But I'm angry. Yeah. I'm pissed and I'm here because everybody Part wants – Part of you to- wants to go and do it to them. So like you think this is your way your brain thinks. You're going to go in there and they're going to go, oh, you don't need to yes, be here. Yes, Oh, and I was like the worst <laughs> one. And so, I, so, I can, so I can go back to my family and friends totally. and go, they told me yep. I don't even need this. Oh, you guys no. are all yep. a-holes. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you guys, there's something wrong with you. You guys, yeah. you don't know. Yeah, totally. And so you don't go in there and you go half-heartedly, but you probably learned some things. I did learn some things. And and it was, it was a good experience. I feel like – I won't, I sometimes talk bad about the treatment center I went to, but I feel like treatment centers are like the gym. It's like if you want to get fit, 
you're going to go to any gym and you're going to get fit. Yeah. Same with rehab. Like That's if, a great analogy. What gonna, you put into it is right, what you'll get right. out of it. Right. Like it doesn't matter what recovery center you go to. It's about your intention going in and where you're at and what you want to get out of it. So how many rehabs did we hit in total? Two. And the second one? The second one. So the story we're leading up to that. Are we, are we right oh, we're fine. Oh, no, you're fine. Okay. Good. Um, so I, the first one didn't work. Then I... Um, started drinking it was like oh i'm just gonna drink wine on the weekends you know like just just wine on the weekends and then the whole thing started where i got back into everything i didn't touch pain pills again but the xanax the drinking all of it and um at this time i was really like i don't know if i can do this life anymore of being married and being mormon and i kind of want to just go out and live the life i want to i feel like i've been living a life for someone else and so i um I mean, my marriage ended and I started, it was like the pendulum swung to like really good housewife to wild. And so I went and I was partying and drinking a lot and living a really crazy lifestyle. And one day I was laying in bed and I was like dreaming of this life I wanted. And it was nothing like the life I was living. And I, at the time I didn't believe in God or a higher power or anything. And I was laying there and I had this super intense spiritual experience. And it was like, I was frozen and it was like, you can truly have anything you want in this life. But if you keep drinking and doing drugs, you are going to die. Like you're done. And I was frozen and I was like, oh my gosh. And and then it was like, do you understand? I was like, yes. And then I was released from it and I called a friend and I was like, I need to go to detox right now. Your spiritual experience asked a follow-up question. Yes. That's amazing. (laughs) Yes. It's like, but do you understand the severity of this? They really want to get the point across. Yeah. Because there's some fine (laughs) print Do you know what this means? I I don't think even Moses got a follow-up question. (laughs) I know. So that's pretty good. I know. So you go into detox. Yes. And it was so painful and hard and, and I wanted to, and so, and then I went to Wasatch Recovery, which was incredible it was like i went in and i had been to rehab before so i know what process group is and i i went in and i look at the schedule and it says process group for two hours every single day we only did it once once a week at the one i went to and i'm like oh no 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 i'm not doing this i'm like i'm not and i do this big announcement i was like i'm leaving i'm not here to listen to all of your guys' stuff i am here for me i don't need to listen to this and i'm not doing this and i walk up the stairs and i was hit with the feeling again and it was like you are not just here for you and i sat down and i was like and i had this feeling like you are going to be in a place where you can share your story and you're going to help people and this is not just for you this is going to help other people and it was the most painful, hardest experience. And I think the coolest thing about process group is I, I realized is they trigger the crap out of you and they will say things that bring up your deepest fears that you don't want no one to see. And then you sit in it and you don't numb and you sit in the pain and you learn. And I honestly, I believe um, feeling is healing, feeling it and allowing yourself to feel and sit in that pain and release it like the practice of that. Then going out in the world and being like, oh, okay, I'm triggered. I'm going to sit in it. I'm going to feel it. And then I'm going to go. That's a, it's a valuable lesson. It and is. It's a lesson that's hard. It's hard. It is. Because we've all been, I mean, as an addict, that's why we ran to the drugs yep. is to numb the feelings because yep. we didn't like the feeling. No. I didn't want to be in this situation. No. So I didn't want to be inside my old my own head. So yep. you know what? Two beers is going to help that. Right. Absolutely. And if two doesn't work, four will. Yeah. Oh, yeah. You know, but that's it. it, it, it it's, it's owning your stuff yep. and sitting in your stuff yep. and realizing that it happened and that's part of it right yeah there's a lot of healing so you, you spent some good time now I, I 
I'm loving your story. Thank it's you. amazing. Um, you come out of rehab. Yeah. I come out of rehab and I'm like, what is my life? Like, I am 30, hold on, I was 34 at the time, I think, 34 years old. I live in this little apartment. I have no husband. I have no job. I have no career path. Like, what am I going to do? And I remember taking this walk and thinking this, like, what, what, I want to do all these things. And like, I feel so silly where I'm at in my life. And I looked at my shadow and I, I was just overwhelmed with this thought. And it was right now you are doing that work. You are on a walk right now instead of taking a shot. So every day, these walks you're taking, this is going to build your empire. This is going to build your future. These little things you do is going to build the dream and the life you want. And it was just such a powerful moment that it's not like these big things that we do to get us where we want. It's these little patterns and these little routines that we set for ourselves to get out of the places we're in. And then over time, you look back and you're like, Oh my gosh. And then like a week later, I went thrifting and I found this vintage hoodie, Nike hoodie with a bleach stain on it. And I was like, I have to buy this. It's a dollar. But what am I going to do with it? And I was like, oh, I, I know there's this bleach dye trend going on. And so I ended up doing my first piece and I bought it for a dollar. I sold it for 70. And I'm like, <laughs> wow. OK, I think this might be my job. So now to let people know, um, you do that. I mean, when I first was introduced to you, you were the thrift store stylist. Yes, that's right. And then you changed it over to? Iconically Angelique. And you go out and you spend days and hours <laughs> going through thrift stores, yeah. uh, DIs, mm-hmm. uh, savers, yep. you name it. Yeah, you name it. And you pick out these pieces and then you take them back and you make them unique. Yes, I drip them out. And drip them out is that <laughs> drip them out. She I call tie them dyes them with bleach. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And uh, this has been very good for you. It's been like I I feel like finding your passion in recovery is so huge because I believe anyone who can recover from addiction, alcoholism, whatever it is, you are very powerful. Yeah. You are very powerful because if you can overcome the thing that draws you in the most and takes over your life, you're capable of doing anything. All right. I love this and and we're going to do this, but I want to talk about this because you just got back from filming a reality TV show with your ex. Yes. And it's called The Big D. Yeah. (laughs) And uh, The Big D is the divorce. Yes, yes, yes. And so it was divorced couples sent to a house. In Costa Rica. Costa Rica. uh, To find love or what was it? I mean, yeah, I guess it was like this dating experiment in front of your ex and everyone in the house has been divorced with each other. So you're dating, like I'm dating someone and... His ex is there. My ex is dating someone. I'm there. Her ex is there. It's just this. Oh I mean, it's a recipe <laughs> for like disaster. It is. I but, mean, but not only a recipe for disaster. Uh, I've watched enough reality TV shows to know that the catalyst for the disaster is alcohol. Absolutely. And they fill that house full of alcohol. Absolutely. You're in recovery. Yes. How does that look? So before I went, I would go out to bars with my friends to prepare. I may, you make commitments with yourself that you know you're not going to do certain things. And that was one that I'm like, I am not going to do it. So what can I do to prepare? So I'd go out to bars and I'd be around drinking. And at first it was hard. But then it was like going on that show. I honestly feel like was the greatest thing for my recovery because it was like it was like baptism by fire. It's like here it's all around you and you're going to be triggered like you've never been triggered before. And you're going to have to learn to cope. And so I, I mean, before I talked to the producers and I'm like, hey, my recovery is extremely important to me. There actually was like different guys who'd come up and be like, hey, I'm seven years sober. Great job. And like, you know, I'd have other 
people. And, and it was so cool because telling my story, I remember the first time I went on and they're pour, pouring shots and I'm like, oh, I actually don't drink. And um, one of the guys is like, no way, tell me about that. And his dad was in recovery and he had a re- he just had so much love and compassion. And everyone, I feel like almost everyone's touched by addiction in some sense or another. And so the respect I felt and and also like one of my best friends on the show is like, I'm not going to drink with you. Like I'm going to tonight, I'm we're going to be sober. I'm just going to sit with you and drink water. Um, and there was someone on the show who had a drinking problem and was very triggering, but also very like a mirror and reflecting back to me, like so grateful where I've been. And it was just, it was very chaotic. It was very dramatic, but it actually was like, I can go out anywhere now and I'm good. Like I can be around alcohol and I'm like, I don't need this. I don't need this. (laughs) Like I have learned and I love, like you were saying before, I love having fun. I love going out. I love dancing. And I didn't want to lose that in my recovery. It's like a part of me that I just love being around people and having fun. And that was like a very big piece of me that I was like, I'm not willing to give up. And and I'm like, but I don't, I don't need, it's not mutually exclusive. Like I don't need alcohol to have fun. I don't need it. I don't need it to, for anything. I'm okay. Isn't that such a great feeling? It is a great feeling. And I'm like the life of the party without it. (laughs) I was just going to say, I'm feeling her energy. She's from the moment we saw her downstairs to now on the show, she's got this really strong, positive energy. I feel like and correct me if I'm wrong, your power, your personality on that show changed the dynamic of what they were filming in that house. I think it might have. I mean, it sounds like it did yeah, to some degree, yeah. right? Like you had, you had, you, you changed the dynamic instead of it just being a party scene yeah. there at the house that might have gotten crazy and maybe the producers would have liked that yeah. too. But now a human element came in, a more right. powerful element. Some yeah. authenticity. Some authenticity yeah. and people change their behavior based on your behavior yeah. that's a that's wonderful a power recovery yes that's so wonderful it's like what i talked about in the beginning of it like when i'm djing a party inevitably there'll be three or four people who come up and be like hey i'm in recovery you yeah, know what yeah, i mean and, yeah. and, and open it up and when they see other people out there doing things it, it's just it's it's so welcoming to those and it was like hey you can go have fun yeah i can do that like i am great at a party until about eleven thirty, when people start looking and talking to your shoulder, yeah, yeah, yeah. Then, then, then I, then I just don't have the. Right. I, I mean, I can still stay, but it's just not fun for me anymore yeah. because you're not going to remember the conversation, right. and I got to act like I'm interested in it anyway. Totally, so this totally. is this is just a dumb dance for yep. both of us. So yep. I'm gonna I'm gonna Irish exit out, yeah. and uh, you guys continue on, and right. I'm gonna go to the gym in the morning. Yep, cool. Peace exactly. out. Yeah, I am. Um, well, my first night I got there, I actually was like what have I gotten myself into? Like, what have I done? I'm not ready for this. I was panicking. The first day on the show, like, I come in week three to stir things up. You'll see um, if you watch. But I am a mess the the next day. Like, if you guys are like, what's wrong with her? And they don't explain it. I was a mess because I'm like, what have I done putting myself in this situation? And I would have to take time by myself to ground myself and meditate and give myself love and get in alignment and be okay. But I feel like, yeah, I also had a bed there that if things got too crazy, I could be like, okay, I'm going to bed. I'm out. But yeah, but yeah, well, you're using your skills that you learned in recovery, your yeah. therapeutic skills. Yeah. That's amazing. Yeah. So what does recovery life look for you look like now? Um, it is, I feel like recovery is a lot about boundaries and balance with myself. Um, I, 
have found this way to live in alignment with my highest self that there is nothing I want to exchange it for. Nothing I would exchange it for where it's just like the peace I feel every day just being in my body and being present with my children and the contrast of addiction mom to recovery mom and addiction and as a friend and a sister and all these things. There is nothing that I would change it for. And it's simple. It's doing the things I love. It's being active. It's allowing my body to process stress by working out. It's um, speaking things that come up and not holding it in. It's not keeping secrets with other people or myself. It's connection. It's um, just living the most honest, true, beautiful life I can. What are your relationships like with your kids now? Oh, my gosh. I... It, I can't even explain it. I'm like eat, just daily, like making breakfast or putting them to bed. It is like Disneyland. It's like the most beautiful moment just being present with them. And I'm so grateful for the contrast because being so gone and being so distracted by addiction or whatever it was going on, just being present and having conversations and holding them and seeing how incredible they are is the greatest gift. Like, I am so obsessed with my daily life. It's simple. There's not a lot going on, but it is so amazing. I feel like the luckiest person. That's a mindful life, right? Yeah. You're, you, that mindfulness means we're in the moment, we're yeah. present, and that, that's that's the only time we're alive, if yeah. you want to get philosophical about right. it. The only time we exist is in the present, and people who learn to live a mindful life live a rich life yeah. because you are in the connection with the things and the people all around you. So right. that's that's beautiful. Thank you. Thank you so much. Do you do anything currently to help your sobriety? Um, Like go to meetings? I don't... What, what, I mean, whatever it I is. I feel like I, I'm working with a coach that I feel like helps a lot. I do journaling. I meditate every night. I do this meditation before I go to bed. To me, I've, um, it, I don't really focus on like addiction recovery. It's more about like life as a whole. Does that make sense? Like, 100%. It's, like, it's not like, oh, I need to stay away from addiction. I don't put a lot of focus on addiction anymore. It's like that was me in the past, and now I have this beautiful life that I just want to keep living. And I don't put a lot of focus on what has been. It's more like creating this beautiful future. So it's more like me exercising and connecting and journaling and working with a coach and being called out on my on my stuff that I'm dealing with. Um, and just living the fullest, truest life versus going through all this stuff. And of course, like if things come up that I need to work through, I do. But yeah, that's pretty much it. It sounds to me like you're finally in a position where each day you can develop that real identity, that yeah. authenticity, yeah. the real person. Right. Yeah. You know, I think that's. Carl Rogers would call that becoming. Yeah. You're always becoming. Right. And that's, that's a happy, healthy, mindfully lived life. Yeah. Well, I'm so glad you stopped by and shared your story. You are so energetic. Uh, so now, I want other people to see her story. So how do we see the show, The Big D? Oh, it's going to be on TBS and I believe HBO Max, but I'm not exactly sure. They said something about it. I don't know if that's going to be after it airs, but TBS, July 16th, it's coming out. I come in week three. 
to stir things up. Right. Did um, you leave with a with a boyfriend? I uh, cannot say. Okay. Ah. NDA. But where can people find your uh, sick drips, if you will? So I have a website. <laughs> it's www.leaked.site. So my company's called Leaked. I'm Angelique, obviously. And I was looking at my name and I'm like, what do I name my company? And I'm like, Ange, Angel, Gel, Leak. <laughs> Leak, okay. Leaked. And I was like, what does leaked mean? And so I went and I Googled what leaked meant. And it's a secret that's been let out. Mm. And I was like, I felt like I contained who I was. And I tried to pretend I wasn't someone. And finally, I'm like, this is who I am. I'm expressing it. I'm owning it. And so that's what my brand's about. I love it. Thank that's you. amazing. Dr. Matt, what are your thoughts on the one and only Angelique? Well, I've had a lot of fun talking to you. So thank you so much thank for brightening you. up our day and, and, uh, providing people with some inspiration. My takeaway probably goes back to something you said um, about doing the little daily things every day. And I call that, you know, adding bricks in your foundation. A brick isn't very big, but when you add in hundreds and thousands of little bricks, eventually you have this strong, beautiful foundation that you can build anything on. And so I think that would be my takeaway is that doing the small little things every single day makes a person strong. So thanks for coming on the show. Thank you. And uh, I can't wait to see what uh, you have in store for the world because I have a feeling you're just getting started. Thank you. And so glad you stopped by. Uh, We want to say thank you very much. Uh, Thank you for listening to Project Recovery. And in case you forgot, Dr. Matt. It's a KSL podcast. She said it's leaked. It's a leaked podcast. (laughs) It's going to get leaked. Right. of this program are for informational purposes only. The program is not intended to be a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Always seek the advice of your physician, licensed therapist, or other qualified health provider with any questions you may have regarding a medical condition. Never disregard professional medical advice or delay in seeking it because of something you've heard on this program. KSL does not recommend or endorse any specific tests, physicians, products, procedures, opinions, or other information that may be mentioned on the program. Reliance on any information provided on the program is solely at your own risk. I'm Dave Cauley, investigative journalist and host of the podcast, Cold. In October of 1985, a woman named Cherie Warren left work at a busy Salt Lake City office. To meet her estranged husband at a downtown auto dealership. She never made it home. Cherie's car surfaced weeks later in Las Vegas. In the parking lot of a hotel casino. No one knows how it got there. Strange. It was strange. Both Cherie's estranged husband and her boyfriend raised suspicion for investigators. I kind of thought that he might have done something. But no arrests were ever made. In Cold Season 3, we dig into double lives, make new connections in the case, and examine the difficulty raised by reasonable doubt. We want answers just as much as anyone else. They have creeps like that now, too, so nothing's changed. That's the new Cold Season 3, The Search for Cherie. Now available anywhere you get your podcasts.